Craig-Karan. And I'm Veronica McCarthy. And this is Women of Contradictions. Hi. Hello. I see a Christmas tree in your background and a bow on your hair. You are <laughs> full. <laughs> you are and full bows in it. my Christmas tree. <laughs> We're like... It's a little Portlandia. Put a bow on it. <laughs> yeah. Um... You know, I have, I'm in my bedroom recording. I have always, I, I, all my life, I feel like wanted a Christmas tree in my bedroom. And this was the year we put a Christmas tree in our bedroom. And my husband isn't a fan of the decorations. (laughs) (laughs) I went with the more like kind of, I don't know, like Scandinavian traditional type of thing. I have like dried oranges on it and like the wooden beads and bows. And he was like, I, I don't understand any of this. <laughs> it's it's very anthropology, which it's definitely like a look. It's a strong look, but I don't, I, I enjoy it. I do appreciate a Christmas tree with a theme. Like I, my growing up, my theme was definitely like red and green, like traditional Christmas tree. And then my mom switched and now it's white. So I now have all of the red and green ornaments. <laughs> <laughs> We always had like just, it was a hodgepodge of, there was no thing. It was just, you know, whatever ornaments collected. And so my tree on the main floor has like, I'm, I feel like it's a, it's it's not quite as tacky as as mine growing up, but, um, we We don't say tacky. We say it's kitsch. It's purposely tacky. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, yeah, we have more like the playful ornaments. So I I wanted the tree that was like very stylized and whatever. But I feel like you know kids like their fun things. So now now everyone's happy except my husband who has to have a tree in his bedroom that he thinks is weird. <gasps> he could put a tree in his office, and I want to see how he would decorate it. Like oh, oh let's see. <laughs> It'd be like Seattle Seahawks. I did get a tree this weekend. I got a tree and then I proceeded to have a meltdown. (laughs) (laughs) I had a meltdown because when I brought the tree into our apartment, I couldn't find a spot for the tree because I sent this photo to you this morning, but um, New York is tight on space and you have to buy stuff for your apartment that fits specifically in that area. So my apartment is like a puzzle. Every little piece is jigsawed perfectly and then you bring in a six foot tree and the whole jigsaw goes to shit (laughs) I actually feel like when you showed it to me I I think your positioning of it works I think it's fine but I did think you might benefit from a fake tree like the kind that are like very skinny no (laughs) no (laughs) okay fine fair fair I, I'm, I, I am anti-fake tree as well, so I, I fully understand. But I do think if you have, like, very certain specifications, a fake tree might work. But if you're unwilling to give up on that, then I think you got to just deal with the kind of random location of the tree. Yeah, like a fake tree over my dead body. I'm, I, I will eat my words before that ever happens. But we're here. <laughs> the tree's up. It's happening. It's the holidays. It's un an okay time of year. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get more into that later um, yes. on another on another episode. Why don't you kick us off this week? Oh, okay. My first thing is something that made me laugh because when I read this article in the New York Times, all I could think of was the restraint of this man. 
Jeffrey Holt died in June and he revealed a secret. He had $3.8 million in the bank and he was leaving it all to his town of Hinsdale, New Hampshire, while during his life, he quietly lived in a trailer park. And I'm just like the restraint to be yeah. a multimillionaire and live in a trailer park and keep the secret to yourself and then donate all of the money to the town in which you've lived in for 40 years. I just, I, I wish I could have met this man alive yeah. because I don't have any of those things. One, <laughs> to live in a trailer park while being a multimillionaire. Two, to donate the entire sum to one town. And three, to not have the town know that I would be doing such a thing while I'm alive. <laughs> that is fascinating. I what did he, How did he acquire the, the money? Was it like, what did it he do? It doesn't say, nobody knows. He, it was just a secret that he held close to his chest. I was like, God, wow. there are people out there that I guess don't gossip. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> That is, yeah, that's really interesting. I don't mind the donation to the town. Like, I think it's kind of sweet. Like, if it's where you grew up and where you lived your whole life, like, I'm, sh- I, you know, hopefully they can find ways to use it. I, I feel like it's a nice civic gesture. It is, but, um, absolutely. Yeah, that, that, I, I don't think, I, I am not, I, I am not restrained in anything. So that is the antithesis of me. I know. I'm just, I hats off to this man. Um, he set up, he basically um, set it up 10 years prior so that the secret would be revealed when he died. And he put it into a nonprofit that with the idea to support projects, programs, and organizations that provide health, education, recreational, cultural benefits to the residents of Hinsdale. Like couldn't, couldn't be a better use of his multimillion dollars, but still damn, I, I, I know I'm not that good of a person. I have my limits. No. And not only that, I'm the asshole who's like, doesn't do anything totally altruistic. Like I definitely want to see if I'm doing a donation, like I want to see the benefits of it. I would want to be at like a ribbon cutting ceremony where I opened a library or something like that. And that's so true. Like, I guess he lived in this town for 40 years. Like he could have been like 10 years in, like, I really like this town. Like here's, Mm here is of my 3.8, here's 3.4 or something. I don't know. And like mm-hmm. live off of the small amount that he needed in his, tra- in the trailer park. And then outside of that, like watch the town flourish, but no, kept it to himself. It seems like he really liked the low profile. And so I think at the end of the day, he just wanted to yeah. keep a low profile for his whole life, but hats off, sir. Hats off. Indeed. My second thing is we talk about J crew a lot on this podcast. We both love old J crew and are fascinated with the aura that it was able to create with these kind of like rumpled chambray shirts um, Mm -hmm. and the magazine era of our childhood. And there's a renaissance happening at J. Crew, And I think it's in large part due to their new creative director of women and children's Olympia Gayot. If I'm saying that right, I think G-A-Y-O-T. She has a phenomenal Instagram and she's definitely fulfilling the role of Jenna Lyons in the sense of bringing the brand to life in a person with a personality attached to it. Mm-hmm. And I think J crew is ready to expand her and, you know, the brand itself further. They did file for bankruptcy in 2020, but they are coming back and are doing rounds of PR right now. There's an article about them on the cut in the New York times. And I just found them all really interesting to see 
how a brand could come back from bankruptcy and how they are trying to honestly tap into their old nostalgia. Mm -hmm. And I commend them to like not reinvent the wheel, but make what they did so well modern again. And I thought this was a really interesting quote that Olympia said. She said, we, the interviewer was asking, why are we so obsessed with the archival imagery of J. Crew? Um, you and myself both included. And she mm-hmm. says, there are fewer images available. Right now, everything's turning so fast. But back then, if you liked a brand or a model, if you liked a style, there were only so many photos taken of that person or that item. It's almost like they're covetable. You're looking mm-hmm. at them more because there's less. And I, I thought that was, insane. I thought that was so A, true and B, interesting to think about in the broad scheme of things, in terms of fashion, fashion, in terms of Instagram, in terms of the way that we consume things, mm-hmm. in terms of the ways that we present ourselves to the world. I think about my childhood and like the few photos of my childhood and what they mm-hmm. mean to me. Not to say that there are like only five, like I have photo albums, but the photo albums are definite. There's mm-hmm. 10 photo albums and I know exactly where they are. And that's the entirety of my childhood visual existence. And I probably could like, I I recollect every photo in some way. And it's interesting for me to think that the children of today won't have that same form of nostalgia or will, or will experience nostalgia differently because of the way that we, we are able to take so many more photos, save so many more photos, like consume so many more photos. There's just a different uh, relationship to found imagery. I, this was years ago now, I had taken a photography, like history of photography class. And the professor had said that within the first five minutes of our day, we will see more imagery and images than a person did in their lifetime a hundred years ago. Oh my God. Isn't that crazy? That has just always stuck with me. And it is, it's just like an inundation of imagery. And you're so right. I, I think she's, correct in that these photos there they are more finite and so there's something I, I don't know I feel like there's something wistful I, there's something happening like just the hearkening back to those 80s and 90s like I'm I'm I am watching the supermodel documentary that you had recommended finally getting around to it and seeing them and all the images produced from that era and I, it I think we have a tendency to romanticize the past. Obviously there was a lot of shit happening at that time as well, but something feels maybe a little more simple. I think in part because we don't, we, the internet wasn't around. Like we didn't have this, like, I don't know, just constant blast of information and imagery. I also think that I would have to look exactly when Photoshop came online, but in a big way, but watching the supermodels documentary back in the day, like they had to get the shot mm-hmm. in the shot mm-hmm. and they couldn't swap heads. Like now right. when you see a group shot of models, like there's probably a head swap happening at some point. Like they took, you know, a photo, they're, they're compositing multiple photos to get that, to get that photo, which is strange when you think about it. So you're compositing things to actually not get a real image. Yeah. You're taking multiple images to put forth what you think is quote unquote, what, what then we think is quote unquote real. And to go back to what like Olympia was saying about there's fewer images. I feel like we then project more on the few images than if there was like 10, you know, 10,000 images, your projection of emotion is almost like dis, um, dissipates because you have so many different images that you could project on. And it's overwhelming at that point. 
Yeah. I think it's probably why there, I I do feel like there's a return to film Mm -hmm. shooting. And I think some of that is the fact that you do capture more of a moment, you capture an imperfection. And I think people are maybe a little bit tired of perfection these days. Totally. There's also, I'll find it and link to it as well, but there is a um, time-lapse of the New York Times front page from, I don't know, early 1900s until present day. And you watch as images start to take over the front page of the New York Times. So it starts all Mm. text and then you can see first black and white images, small black and white images, and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then they turn to color. And again, like the images just like expand and take over. So again, we are image focused more than anything else these days. Mm -hmm. All right. A tangent on the uh, history of photography. (laughs) (laughs) And my, my last three thing is kind of a, uh, it's a 2B, if you will. Like, you know, that, that was 2A, this is 2B. But um, it has to do with Jenna Lyons. She got a new job. She will join Blackstone's new brand agency as its executive creative director in the new year. Lyons will be part of Fundamental Co., which is a 12-person agency being spun off from private equity giant, which I can't get over. I'm so confused and I need yeah, to go I know, more. I know Blackstone. I, I know yeah. someone who works there. That's crazy. I know. A 12-person agency, okay, so spun off from private equity giant Blackstone, specifically Johnny Bauer, who shaped the identity of many Blackstone companies. And I'm super intrigued. I remember when um, Jenna Lyons became a real housewife, in part, she was very honest, and you talked about this in an article that we we talked about as a three thing, that she was like, I wasn't getting invited to parties. Like, I needed mm-hmm. to put my name back on the map and be, like, present in people's lives again. And I do wonder if it worked. Like if this yeah. is going to become something super fruitful for her and it's r- really not much more of it is known than just that, but it's got money. It's got Jenna Lyons. You put those two things together. I'm intrigued as to what this, what this branding, what this creative work is going to look like. Yeah, definitely. Because she is in- an incredibly talented person. I do think, you know, she had run, ran the course at J crew, but I definitely think, want to hear more of her voice in whatever ideation, ideation that, that is. Totally. I mean, when she started doing interiors at the end of her time in J crew, they were beautiful. Mm-hmm. I would love to see more of oh her my gosh, interiors. Amazing. I know. So yeah, S- stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm going to start off with my three of my favorite self-care three things. Does that make sense? It's like a stocking. It's like a self-care stocking of three things. Yes. So one is a body exfoliator by Necessaire, which you had turned me on to Necessaire a while ago because I am a sensitive Sally and I have very mm, sensitive yes, skin. And Necessaire is amazing because they're, uh, they have a whole range that's fragrance free and it doesn't have a bunch of crap in it. So I can use it, but their body exfoliator is phenomenal. I love it. It is a little on the pricey side for what it is. It's $30, but I don't, I only use it like once a week. So it does last a while. So that's number one. Number two is something I picked up a little while ago in Turkey and it is donkey milk soap. And I realized that sounds very odd, but it smells fantastic, shockingly. And it is believed that donkey milk soap 
can help the skin with acne, dermatitis, skin allergies. And the reason for this is that it contains essential fatty acids that work as a powerful anti-aging and healing properties. It also contains antibacterial properties that can be effective in healing skin irritation and redness. So it's actually donkey milk. It's not actual, just it. Nope. It's actual donkey milk. And I've been using it for like a year and a half now. And I have to say, as someone who has had a lot of skin stuff, knock on wood, I haven't had like Oh skin God, milk. you just changed yourself again. Now I've twice. been doing that so much lately. I can't even begin to explain, but... Here I am. Anyway, uh, you're I, doing it for the people. Look at you sacrificing your good yeah, exactly. the benefit of the group. And then my last thing is the body oil by Nux. I, I've actually talked about this in the newsletter, but a while, a few years ago, I switched from lotion. I no longer use any type of body lotion, and I only use body oil. And I find it to be so much more moisturizing. It's I think better because they usually come in a glass jar. You don't need this like giant plastic tub of lotion. And I find it to just like make my skin feel better overall than lotion. And it doesn't actually leave your skin feeling oily. It absorbs pretty quickly. And so those are my, those are my three body self-care things, uh, as a favorite thing for my next thing. It is a podcast that you and I have both loved called Sentimental Garbage. It's been around for a while. It is hosted by Caroline O'Donohue, who is Irish and freaking hilarious. She's just so funny. She's the kind of person you're like, I want to be friends with this woman. Being Irish, I feel like she knows how to tell a good story. She's a bit dark, very funny. And so every episode talks about like things that are kind of sappy. Like a more recent one is Pride and Prejudice, the 1995 BBC miniseries. She talks about Taylor Swift. There's been like, you know, the Barbie movie. We in particular loved, she kind of did like a mini series that was called Sentimental in the City. And it basically, there was seven episodes or something like that, that ran through each episode was a season of Sex in the City. It is so good. It's mm-hmm. hilarious. She does it with another of our favorites, Do- Dolly Alderton. And I think we both did this where we listened to the episode and then we watched the season or I can't yes. remember if I, I rewatched it, like prompted me to rewatch sex in the city again for like the upteeth time, like all the way through, but with their commentary, and it was yeah. so fascinating to have their commentary side by side. Yeah. I loved it. And there are definitely things. I, it was also interesting because they're, they're both British and Irish and there were things that they just could not get on board with. I think being from that other culture, like they hated when Big said "absolutely," like they thought it was so cheesy. And you and I both loved the "absolutely" line. I still use it. I still yeah. use it in text messages when I'm cheeky. I'm mm-hmm. I'm so on board with it. Yeah, but they did not like it. So it was also interesting to hear like the different cultural differences of what they thought was plausible and not plausible and all that kind of stuff. So I will never forget how much they hated on any storyline that had to do with cutting back on booze. And it was cracking me up because I'm like, the UK the UK girls love to tie one on. Like they love a sesh. And they were like, Miranda does not have a drinking problem. And I'm like, okay, it wasn't well communicated, but I think she might have a drinking problem. Totally. Totally. Um, So yeah, that is just a, that's a fun one. So for my final thing, this is a bit bigger, a little meatier, but there was two articles 
I read this weekend, and they were both kind of in a similar tone. One was in The Atlantic, and it was entitled, Inflation is Your Fault. And it was super interesting because it was basically talking about how all of the numbers in the U.S., I'm specifically talking about the U.S. economy, um, are good. Like, our job numbers are good. Inflation is down. Wages are up. Wages have actually rose higher than the cost of living. And wages are not only up for like top earners, they're actually way up for lower earners as well. People have more money in their bank accounts than they've ever had before. And yet, people feel really shitty about the state of the economy. And there was another article in the FT this weekend, and it was titled, Should We Believe Americans When They Say the Economy Is Bad? And it basically ran down, there was like graphs and figures that was like laying it out as well. Like the economy is not bad. Things are not bad. Yes, things have risen in price. Like the article in The Atlantic talks about how much eggs have gone up and like certain certain products especially have risen. But it also says our wages have risen quite a bit. And there are other things that are much cheaper than they were. Like televisions are 90% cheaper now than they were in the 80s. And we technically have more money than we have. We technically have more money now than we did in the 80s. And yet our mood is dour. Mm. And I think both of these articles kind of like laid out the numbers and sort of came up with reasons on why they thought that was. But I don't feel like either of them really gave like a a good argument for why people feel that way. And I know that I think it goes across political lines as well, like people just feeling a general sense of malaise about the state of both the economy and I think politics, and then I think world, the state of the world in general. And I think that that actually plays into it more than anything else. And I also can't help but wonder, as I was reading these, is the effects of social media on Mm. our feelings of being quote unquote poor or broke. And not not just social media, but media in general. I definitely feel like I am going back to the inundation of imagery, but anytime I'm on Instagram, anytime I'm like watching TV, I don't watch a ton of TV with commercials, but when I, I do, like it is this idea of buying more, buying more. You see mm-hmm. people on Instagram having huge beautiful homes, showing you all the things they bought to fill their homes in, taking trips, having fancy cars. And so, because consumer spending is still up, the Atlantic article says, like, if you want inflation to go down, like, stop spending money, people. Like, you're, like, basically part of the problem. But, so, yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, why are we feeling this way? And, yeah, I, I just... I... I cannot wait to read these articles. I have not read them yet. I 100% agree with a lot of it being social media and like keeping up with the Joneses and Mm -hmm. that feeling. And now the Joneses aren't just your next door neighbors. They're every influencer across the country. Like the neighbors are now like, you know, multiplied by the hundreds and those neighbors are getting all their shit for free and not telling you. Right. And a lot of these people are living in 
Utah and Texas, where the cost of living, the, how much it costs to buy a house and a bunch of other things are much more affordable. Totally. And I also think that we, I was listening to this um, podcast about climate change and the woman who was being interviewed was the one who did the Paris Treaty peace talks around climate change in 2015. I want to say her name's Christine Amapour. Anyway, she was talking about how this generation, the newest generation, is calling themselves the last generation. They are putting forth this idea that the world is going to die off after them. And she is saying that it will if that's what they believe. And we've talked about this a little Mm -hmm. bit about climate change, that it is very real. It is very dire. But as she was saying, she's like, we have all of the technology. We have all the knowledge. We have all of the people in place to correct it. We just have to believe that we can. And the fact that we don't believe that we can, we will not. That generation will be the self-fulfilling prophecy of the last generation because that's what they are saying on Instagram. That's what they're starting to call themselves is the last generation. I really think though this ties into politics and I'm not talking like Democrat, Republican talk politics. I mean like who our politicians are across the board. Like no one is inspiring right now. Mm. You look at Joe Biden and on numbers, things are great. But like, I know I'm not excited about Joe Biden. He's freaking old. Like there's not a lot of inspiration to come up from him, you know? And the alternative, Trump is also old and worse in my opinion. (laughs) And there's just, and then you you go outside of the U.S. and I, like I look at a lot of politics around the world. Think of the U.K. You have Rishi Sunak, not inspiring. Keir Starmer, head of labor, not inspiring. Like so many people in politics right now are just not inspiring. I don't feel like our politicians are meeting the moment, and the few that have, like the Jacinda Ardens of the world are fucking torn down and worn down and then leave, get burnout Mm -hmm. and leave because they've had enough. And so I feel like we're just at this weird place where, you know, we had, you and I both had Barack Obama come up in 2008. We were young in our like mid to early twenties and that whole idea of hope and everything during a massive economic crisis. Yeah. (laughs) But it was needed. And no, Obama, I don't think fulfilled like the prophecy of hope. And obviously we, we know that, but I do think you still need someone to be hopeful, someone to be inspiring. And I, I can't think of anyone right now that really inspires me, not even just like politically, but like and maybe be maybe Beyonce, maybe Taylor I was gonna say, Swift. I was like, well, Taylor Swift inspires us all to have a tick up in our economic status. I'm yeah, like, yeah. But like, other than that, honestly, I don't, I don't know. I can't really think of anyone. I, I think there's just an overall malaise uh, in our our mood, our, the general mood, and I, I think it it goes beyond the U.S. I, I feel like it's in other parts of the world as well. I do wonder, and I know I I, re, I know I'm like blaming everything on social media right now, but I think I have just felt so. I don't know. I I do think it's a, a root of a lot of problems, and I think 
like comparison is the thief of joy. And I firmly believe that. And I think that there's something to that because my circle is not any different. I feel like people definitely just don't feel overall happy here. And the only thing that stands out to me is is our consumption of social media in more recent years. And so that is why I am taking a break next year. I am so curious to see if my if my theory pans out, like if I do feel overall happier, um, not not having all this comparison to in my face, and if your bank account goes up, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> my husband will be especially curious about that one. <laughs> Break going off of social media is like the sole reason why our inflation goes down. <laughs> I wonder if we all took a break, what would happen? Seriously. <laughs> and we're back. Greetings. <laughs> Talking about something today that I go down rabbit holes on. I find cults fascinating. And I'm starting to realize I always have because there were a couple movies of my youth that I watched. And now looking back on them, I'm like, oh, they were cult movies. They were movies about women getting away from a cult. And I didn't even realize that I have always had this very strange fascination with the manipulation, the power, the dynamics of cult leaders. Do you think it's like, I want to be a cult leader? (laughs) Well, I was just going to say, do you think it's a self-preservation? Like, are you worried that you could fall into a cult or do you? Okay. I am not worried. I could fall into a cult. Although I do have people in my life that I love that I think are very cult susceptible. (laughs) One of my best friends, love her dearly, is cult susceptible. And I am constantly like, no. <laughs> there are people out there that you just, you know, when they always like people um, critique people coming out of a cult, a cult, I think they wrongly critique them. And they're kind of like, how could that have happened to you? I'm like, it can happen to people. And then it also can happen more often to some people that just are gullible and believable and want to better themselves. I do think cults prey upon people who, who want to be in a better place than they are now. And the cults recognize that they're in a current weak space or weak Mm -hmm. place. And they're like, Oh, we can be the thing that gets you better. That helps you. That makes you stronger. That makes you more money. That makes you a better actor. Mm -hmm. So there is this like self-help tinge to it. And there's people out there that are susceptible to somebody. And I think, I think people also look for community Mm -hmm. and, I've, I've like watched a couple of the documentaries on cults and it, it's often people who've moved to a new place, uh, single, single women, I feel like are incredibly susceptible and wanting, wanting people to help you out. And I feel like that's, that's how they hook you in. This is why I think I'm, and I'll explain why I don't think I'm susceptible to culties (laughs) (laughs) because I am hypercritical of everything and I've been hypercritical of any dogmatic beliefs since I was a child. And I think that's why organized religion, while I don't think I have the, I don't have the current day adverse reaction to it that you do. Mm -hmm. I had a early on questioning squinty eye. Nah, I'm good. 
type of approach to religion. And I feel like that kind of approach, I've always been skeptical. I've always questioned. I've never liked blanket statements. I've never liked black and white. And mm-hmm. I think that that allows it to, for me to be really hard. It, it It's difficult for me to believe in anything. Yeah. <laughs> including God. <laughs> <laughs> and specifically with like cults in general, they they set up a world in which you have to live within that black and white and you're not allowed to question it. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I, first of all, let's define, let's use the definition of a cult. So there's a couple definitions, but they all kind of circle the same thing. One definition is a system of religious veneration and devotion directed towards a particular figure or object. And I think that this gets particularly dicey when that quote unquote figure or object is a man who is still alive, who thinks that he's the smartest man in the room because he's actually not. And he has very low, like he has a lot of insecurity. And I'm thinking of like the men of Nexium mm-hmm. who put themselves at the center of that like veneration. Will Another you time? tell the people and myself, I'm actually not familiar with Nexium. Can you explain what that is? Oh my gosh, of course I can. <laughs> Nexium and Keith Ranieri, uh, he is the founder of this Nexium cult. Uh, if you want to look it up, it's N-X-I-V-M, but pronounced no. next Nexium. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, and they, there were a couple whistleblowers a few years back that finally put Keith Ranieri into jail, but he created this, you know, mid-level marketing scheme in the way of sex trafficking amongst Mm. young women. And he himself was having sex and branding many women within this cult, as well as taking their money. And with that money, he was able to kind of like support his lifestyle. And there are some like well-known actors that were in the cult. I was just going to say, I feel like now that you're saying this, I feel like I've heard about the actor, actresses, who got in trouble for like a sex cult, but I don't think I, I read Allison, it. Allison Mack was like the one that you probably know off the top of your head. Um, but he, he started in Los Angeles and kind of preyed upon those actors that want to be better actors, more successful, making money. And so he used these like three-day seminars that then turned into five-day, seven-day. And then you slowly had to recruit other people to be a part of the seminars. And all the seminars cost money. But then through the seminars, you would better yourself. You would, you know, quiet the the um, negative voices in your head. You would become like a better version of yourself and thus a better actor, yada, yada, yada. So that's kind of where it started, but it ended up being both like East coast and West coast. They had um, people from Canada. Um, It was across the country. I don't know the amount of people that were fully in the cult by the time that he was put into jail, but finally um, there were a few whistleblowers and I'll actually link out to their podcast because they had this amazing podcast called a little bit culty. And they Mm. now look critically at all other things that could be considered cults and decide if they are or are not a cult after being in one and whistleblowing on Keith Raniere. But there's also an HBO documentary on it. It's all really interesting at how deep somebody can get into a cult and how much that they can not listen to the people around them saying that this is wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, he literally branded these women with the, with NXIM and was sleeping with all of them. Like I'm talking cattle branding on their pubic bones. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. It's, it is really, it's really interesting how 
you can, I don't know, people find themselves in these situations. I'm not as into cults as you are, but I've definitely watched like documentaries here and there. And the one you probably saw, The Way Down, the W-E-I-G-H. And I, I feel like often cults are offshoots of a main religion, like a Christianity or Mormonism. And it was just so interesting, like how it's, I do think for a lot, it's like a slow process of getting to the crazy. And I am curious your thoughts, because as you were talking about like the cult of personality and stuff, what do you think of Tony Robbins? Like, do you, would we, or like what have other people said about Tony Robbins? Because I know people who've gotten very into Tony Robbins and there is, there are elements that feel a little culty, but I don't, to my knowledge, this could come out, who knows, but like, to my knowledge, it doesn't have, there's not, there's not necessarily a darkness that I'm aware of. Yeah. And I also think that this kind of blends into the idea of like, is it a cult or is it Mm culty? I think that we have like an, uh, we're starting to use cult in, in a few different ways. There's obviously cults that are harmful to people and then there's cults like soul cycle and we yeah. kind of like use you know or taylor swift the cult of taylor swift the cult yeah. of beyonce yeah These, i think those would be more like cultural fanatics uh-huh. that at the end of the day they can leave at any time i think that's yeah. one of the big differentiations between tw- between something that's culty and that's something that is a cult a cult doesn't let you leave a cult makes it really difficult for you to leave either physically or emotionally, or they have all your finances tied up, or they mm-hmm. have blackmail on you. A lot mm-hmm. of times that they will ask you to give them something personal so they can trust you and what that actually is, whether that's like, you know, a family secret or naked photos or something, mm-hmm. they want that collateral from you in the guise of like, oh, this will let us trust you to be a part of this inner sanctum. What it actually is, is then blackmail used against you. So again, you can't leave. Whereas if you're a Taylor Swift fan, you can walk out of that concert at any time. You can walk out of a soul cycle class at any time. They're not used. They're not holding you there. Right. But I do think like with the Tony Robbins, which what's interesting, I, I don't think they're holding you there, but I do think there is a manipulation that happens where like, if you do, if you do this five day retreat, if you do this seminar, like you will be better, you will experience more whatever euphoria. I don't know. And so like, there is a manipulation happening there. I do think you can leave at any time. Like there's nothing holding you there, but there's still something, there's still something I find a little bit off putting about that realm. Well, there's, there's also the argument that mid-level marketing is our cults Mm. because they, in the same way are, because the person at the top of the pyramid, who's making all the money is going to make it really hard for somebody underneath them to leave because they need to keep them there to keep making the money. And they're going to say things like, I mean, when I say hard to leave, I also mean emotionally abusive things where you're like, well, why would you, why would you leave? Because that's going to hurt your family because this is how you're making the extra income, Mm -hmm. like stuff like that, that can get Mm -hmm. into your head. And if you think about it, it's, I find cults and abusive and people who are in abusive relationships, the abuser in the relationship is using the very similar tactics as a cult leader to kind of get the person in and keep them in, in the same idea of like an abusive relationship, 
they're so they're almost overly kind at the beginning. They kind of give you everything in the beginning. The love so bombing. Get, yeah, exactly. So you get that hit of like, oh, this is good for me. Oh my God, look at myself progressing. Look at all these friends I've made. Look at this community I have. Look at this immediate like circle, inner circle that I have that I've I've never had before. And then once you're in, same with a relationship, the love bombing, once you're in is then when it starts to be, you start to be criticized. You start mm-hmm. to like, need to do things. Same with mid-level marketing in the sense of like, no, you need to get five people to sign up for this. And those five people need to sign up for this. That's when the tactics start to go into place. Um, But I, there's a few things that I think I at least use to think of something's a cult or not. (laughs) And yes, I do think about this sometimes. Like, I also wonder if like, is QAnon a conspiracy theory or is it a cult? <laughs> like there's things that mm. I question that I'm like, you, you, I am not in QAnon, but I, when people talk about it, the way, the fanatic way that they talk about it and the way that like they, it seems like to me, sometimes once you're in, you don't leave easily these conspiracy theory, like mm. forums. And yeah. I do wonder if there's like a culty aspect to them. Yeah. But I think, some things to that I like to like use as check marks is one, they definitely say like bad things will happen if you leave. So mm-hmm. that can also be like going back to the tone, Tony Robbins of it, like, Oh, you're not gonna, if you leave now, you're not going to like reach the next level of enlightenment. You're not going to get somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, if you leave also, they usually ask for money up front. Because this idea, they, again, like, play on all these, like, human psychology things. Mm -hmm. If you pay $10,000 to be a part of this seminar, and two days in, you're getting, like, the icky feelings, and you have, like, you know, three more days to go, you don't want to leave because you're like, I'm going to be the fucking fool that just spent $10,000. Like, Mm -hmm. it has that psychological effect on you where you're like, well, it's not necessarily getting your money's worth, but you're like, no, I gave them $10,000. I'm not a fool. I need to like see this through and Mm -hmm. like show myself that like I was right in giving them the $10,000. So any money that's like asked for upfront, I feel is like very often connected to a cult. Um, And it's also like, and that at at mid-level marketing, because you have to give them money first to start. And so you're like, well, I just bought this kit for $250 and I'm already probably not in a good financial position. So now I really have to see this through. Mm -hmm. And again, like that's such a good example of like, when I say to give money up front, like you really have to think about the ways in which that's like actually expressed. Like, I feel like the love bombing sometimes the quote unquote giving money up front, I think in a love bombing scenario could be a way in which somehow they infiltrate your life in a way that you think they want to be a part of your life, but then they're actually financially tied to your life, whether that's like moving in together too soon or like buying a big item together, whether it's like, I don't know if it's a car or getting a dog together, Mm -hmm. some like financial tie-in that they can like use to then manipulate you Mm -hmm. later in the game. Another thing is, which I think is fascinating, it's they usually have a very specific phrase that they use as a criticism. So if you were to leave, or if you do start to critique what they're doing, they call that like, oh, that's your disruptive personality speaking, or that's your shadow side speaking. They like claim it to be a negative thing if you are at all critical. And I feel like you see this in abusive relationships so much when someone does try to start to speak up for themselves it is so easy to psychologically manipulate somebody. And I feel like that's why it is that thing where people are like, 
oh, how could it have happened to them? And it'll never happen to me. I'm like, if you think it'll never happen to you, it's going to happen to you at some point. Like if you think you're like clear of the brainwashing, it might happen. It is like such a slippery slope. Well, and I might catch flack for this, but I'm sorry. In a lot of churches that are not quote unquote cults, but they are churches, you know, what is it that is taking you away from it? It's the devil. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's the devil. He's, he's, you know, you've been listening to him. You've been following him. And that's why you're, that's why you're leaving. That's why you're doing these things. Like there is an element of, you know, (laughs) cultiness to religion. Sorry. No, I don't think that you should be sorry at all. I think 100%. I think that like, again, it's like holding the contradiction of like a church and a religion can do good things, I believe. Mm -hmm. I know you have a harder time believing that, but it also can do really, really bad things. It can also like very much manipulate people, especially when they're in this like weak, vulnerable spot. And they, Mm -hmm. I feel like they prey upon them and they're like, okay, that is someone to recruit into the church. That is like someone who is like possible of it. Yeah. I thought this was really interesting when, when doing my research on cults, but the FBI researches cults and tries to track them and tries to break them up because like technically there's typically many like illegal things going on when a cult is Mm -hmm. at its peak. And an old FBI director um, spoke about a a cult bends someone's soul. And I thought that was such like a painfully beautiful way to put it in the sense that he was saying that when you're sitting in a room and a leader lies and you know, they're lying you kind of are like, is anybody else reading this lie? Or is anybody else seeing this lie? And when you mm-hmm. see the rest of the room isn't reacting to the lie, mm-hmm. you start to question yourself that you're mm-hmm. the crazy person. And then they lie again and still like no reaction from the room about the lie. And then like five lies later, you've now, as he says it, like bent your soul to fit into this group because as humans, we like don't want to be ostracized from a group. We want mm-hmm. to be in a group. And so it's also one of the reasons why cults typically bring like one new member in at a time. So that new member can see the fact that all of these other members are not disagreeing. And if they're the only one disagreeing, then they're going to be ostracized. And that's against human behavior. It is. It's really interesting to think of like the FBI cults being on the FBI's radar, because I do think there are a lot of things that are, like you said, like culty. But the fact that Scientology is not, it's probably the biggest, most well-known cult. We've like accepted that it is a cult. And yet it's still in existence and hasn't been taken down. And like, I know there was, I, I can't remember exactly, but I know there was something really shady about when Scientology got the tax status in the U.S. of being a religious organization. Do you remember this? Yeah, I'm trying to think what year that happened. Because basically, if you are a religious religious organization in the U.S., you don't pay taxes. It's a huge benefit. And for years, Scientology was lobbying the IRS to give them this status. And they finally won it. And there was... I know a lot made of like, why? Like, what did they have on the IRS or someone in the IRS that they were finally able to achieve this? And it's a huge part of the reason they've been able to build up their wealth, build up their property empire. And also if somebody has um, 
is um, registered as a religion, there's a lot less involvement from the government. Like it's much harder for a government to get involved if you're registered as a religion than if you're like a private practice. They mm. can like raid so much easier. It's I, I don't know exactly the laws around it, but I do know that religion also protects for whatever reason, prying eyes from the state because church and state well, are not think, separated. <laughs> yeah, I think because in the U.S. in particular, our the country was founded on this premise of religious freedom and persecution. Like, that's why people came here. And so I think there's a lot that's done mm. to then, and in protect some ways it's that. good and in some ways it's bad, but to protect it, yeah. That makes so much sense. Well, this is a question we've talked about a lot in terms of Scientology and like other other cults, but I think Scientology because it's still an ongoing cult and it's still, we both believe, and I think there's so much fact around this that it's still like hurting people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that when there's people who are in the cult, are you still allowed to like those people? <laughs> <laughs> there are like some actors that we both really like their work as actors. And then you hear... And they're like part of the Scientology church or a member or like a practicing member or like have some affinity to it. Yeah. And you're like, damn, it's like the Woody Allen conundrum where you're yeah. like, what are, what are my rules around this of separating the artist from the cult? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's funny because you and I do not align often on TV shows. And yet two of our favorite TV shows, The West Wing and Mad Men, had an actress, Elizabeth Moss, in both, and she is a Scientologist. And I find, I, I love her as an actress. I think she has impeccable taste in picking projects. And it kills me that she is also a, she is like, not like a half-assed Scientologist. She is like a full-fledged pain member of Scientology. She does a really good job or her, I think her people do a really good job of keeping it quiet. She's not out there like rah, rah Scientology, but given all that we know about the organization, like it is, it, it just kills me a little bit that she's part of it. I know. I, I don't know what to do about it. (laughs) That's literally me just in silence, staring off into space, like stumbling over the like, I don't know, because I do think that, I think that there is such a psychological abuse going on within cults and at times physical abuse. And Mm -hmm. I think when there's physical abuse, the law enforcement, it's, it's easier to pin down when you're, when you're looking at Keith Ranieri is branding his sex slaves. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, there's phys- there's clear physical abuse here. We can go in. But when right. there's this psychological abuse, when, you know, m- m- parents are saying that their children are in a cult, but the children are like appearing healthy, that there's no mm-hmm. physical harm done to them, but there's a psychological harm that they're not able to leave. I think that's when it gets so, terrifying and fascinating at the same time of like, how do you, if it's a psychological thing, how do you put laws around that? How do you protect somebody from ultimately quote unquote, it's their free will to be there or not. Like, Mm -hmm. but psychologically it's not their free will. It's this weird, I think cults live in this weird gray line that we're still not quite sure how to prosecute until, you know, there's, a a sex slave issue happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that what is interesting though, is like, I watched that Scientology documentary a while ago, a few years ago that came out on HBO. I can't remember 
something clear, something like that. Anyway, they talk about how they have these facilities. There's like a, a ship that's at sea that I, that there's apparently abuses happening there. There's a number of properties that have basically like, it's like not slavery, but it's like, <laughs> it's on, it's on par with that. And I, I don't know if they've just done a fantastic job of like, towing the line of where something is illegal versus not illegal. But I, I just, I don't know. I hate, I do not like conspiracy theories. I do not like to like go into conspiracy theory territory, but there is part of me that's like, do they have people in certain spaces that like are protecting them because they are so large and According to people who have left, the like Leah Remini's of the world, there are abuses happening. And, you know, the Danny Masterson thing just happened where he was convicted of rape. He actually, I think Scientology had stood by him up until that point, and he has now been expelled after the conviction. I didn't even know he was a Scientologist. Yeah. So he, so that's a huge part of the reason they say he was able to like get away with it for so long was that Scientology was protecting him. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But he's now since been expelled. But yeah, I do. I don't know. I I feel like I think there are, I think there is some shady stuff happening there that is keeping them protected because from what people say who have left, there is some illegal stuff happening. So it's like, how are they not getting in more trouble? Yeah. It could make you go down a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which is why I just, why I just like stay away. Um, well, it's funny because at the beginning, when we first started talking about this and I brought up the idea of wanting to talk about cults, because I think, again, I spoke about in the beginning, I've always had like a weird fascination with this like psychological warfare that happens around them. And I also have a fascination with like self-care and self-help, specifically self-help, I think. Not because I go down the rabbit holes of self-help, but I think like coming from LA, there's so many people around you who are always like looking for the answer. Mm -hmm. I feel like the secret, like Oprah Winfrey's The Secret is a perfect example of like, if I just read this one book, my life will be like, everything will be okay. And I do think there are moments in the self-help world. And I think this kind of goes back to Tony Robbins that you do have to be very wary of, because I also think that they're playing upon people who are actively seeking out ways to be better. So you're Mm -hmm. already setting yourself up. And I think that some, some cults like live in plain sight, like transcendental meditation, like that is, you pay somebody to teach you how to meditate and then you like get to the next level and you are taught that at one point you might be able to have yogic flying and there's one quote unquote God who doesn't exist in any other religion, but he's again, a real man. And you are all like in service to him. There's all of these like, Oh, I didn't know that about that. Yeah. There's all these things that line up where you're like, what every fucking celebrity is in transcendental meditation. And then Mm. the more you look into it, you're like, why do I have to keep paying for these seminars to teach my, to teach meditation. And again, I think it's that critical moment. And unfortunately, I think when a celebrity is involved with a cult, we aren't as critical because our celebrities are our gods. And we Mm. think 
if a celebrity is involved, then it must be okay. And if you think about when you watch the Nexium documentary, Keith Raniere was obsessed with celebrities. And I think because he realized if you have a face that everybody knows who who's, has said yes to this, mm-hmm. then it's that much more likely that somebody else won't have that critical, like, wait, you all are just a bunch of weirdos in your basement right now. Yeah. No, well, I mean, like, I feel like that's the Scientology playbook as well. Totally. Like recruit Hollywood, you know? Yeah. And I do, maybe it's also, maybe my fascination with cults comes from like, I feel like a lot of them are born in California. Being in a, <laughs> oh, so many. Yeah. So many. And, yeah. And I do wonder if there was like this, it's this weird, like culty light that happens in California. I mean, even the cult of Erwan, have you read that there's this yeah. like, the, the Air One has been re- yeah. rebranded and we are in an era of the cult of Air One and that, you know, this $80 uh, smoothie is like the next miracle drug. Well, uh, I do think Cal- maybe not so much anymore, but I think for a long period of time since, you know, California's like history uh, in the United States are part of, you know, colonialism people have looked to California as this like new life, a new start. People come there to be somebody different. Literally you have Mm. actors changing their names, changing their identities. And I actually just read a really interesting thing about Cary Grant who like completely changed who he was. And the Cary Grant that we know of is not, that's not the real man. So I feel like it's rife for that because these are people who want to be something different. Like, Historically, Californians, people who have moved there, want to be something different. And so I think it, they're probably easier to prey upon. God, that's so interesting to think about. Like, we've spoken a bit about this, about how you, the the place that you're in shapes the identity. Like, mm-hmm. London is the city it is for also the climate that it's in, mm-hmm. the water that surrounds it, mm-hmm. versus, you know... Rome is the city it is for like this area that it's in. And if you think of the United States, like I feel like the East coast is like so critical of anything that's a magic potion. Cause I feel like they are the people that can't And this is like so oversimplified, but like America was founded in these 13 colonies and we already were like, okay, religious persecution is not going to be a thing here. And then from there, there was like westward expansion, whereas like the people of the East Coast that were like, no, I want more. I want different. I want better. I want new and big and open sky and like the Pacific. And there's this whole other land and we must like have this like just blind faith of westward expansion. And the East Coasters were like, dude, I'm good here. Like y'all are crazy. <laughs> totally. I totally and think that like long term plays into the coastal the coastal differences for sure. And that's why have this like section of the Midwest of these people who are just they gave up. <laughs> they were like <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. I'm just saying. <laughs> They're just super nice at the end of the day. Like yeah. the nicest like, people you, know, you were ever I've gone as, I'm, This is enough for me. I've gone as far as I need to go. <laughs> I made the effort. Okay. I made the effort. We didn't get there, but I made the effort. Uh, well, I really don't have a closing thought on my, uh, well, my I, I feel like you need, they, I, you need to give like homework of like your favorite culty documentaries and all that, because I, 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 fi- I find it really interesting. And I, I know there's a number of books that you've read that also, I think if you are someone who's interested in this, it would be nice to know. Um, I definitely think you should start with 
any and all Nexium documentaries. There are actually two of them out right now. I think one's on Netflix and one's on HBO. And I also think it's always interesting to have two documentaries side by side because at the end of the day, a documentary is still a perspective. I feel like people take documentaries as like a bibliographical truth. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) it's yes. We're still editing this to get, to get around things. If you want to go more into like the, uh, cult culture. I think cultish, the language of fanaticism is a fascinating book. Um, and it kind of, again, talks about what, what I briefly spoke about of the idea of like soul cycle is cultish, but it's not a cult. Mm-hmm. And we do live in a society where we are fanatics, the Taylor Swift, the Beyonce, mm-hmm. we get mm-hmm. fanatical about something. Um, CrossFit, a lot of it has to do with like self-help or feeling better uh, and kind of navigating what is technically a cult and what is just a little bit cultish. Um, so that's a really good book. And then also I think Emma Klein, the girls, it's a novel about girls in a cult. And I think that that, I absolutely adored that book because it is from the perspective of these young women who get involved in a cult. And again, I think that people should read more fiction because it puts you in the mind of somebody and it creates empathy yes. for you in a much bigger way than when you're just like listening to a documentary about their story. It gives you their inner monologue. And I I don't think it's an accident that like more women read. This is like a fact that more women read fiction than men. Men read a lot of nonfiction. Women read fiction and women tend to have like more empathy than men because I think we do have more... We we see more people's inner monologues through all of our fiction reading. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not going to read or do any of this during the holidays because I like (laughs) to stay in a happy, in a happy place, but January, you know what? Let's just, let's just go dark. Let's embrace the doom and the gloom. So that will be on my January. You see it as doom and gloom because I see it as like an interesting psychological, like study on something. I don't go doom and gloom with it like you do, but I, it makes me sad. It makes me sad, I guess, for people. (sighs) I understand. Okay. January 1st, Colts, here we come. Find us on Instagram at Women of Contradictions. Sign up for our newsletter at womenofcontradictions.com. Or drop us a note at hello at womenofcontradictions.com. Till next time. Ciao.